And take your scriptures and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. It's on page 1188 of the Pew Bible. A question for you just to think about while you're turning there. Who were your idols growing up? Who were your idols growing up? Who did you look up to? We all have idols in our life. People we want to emulate. People we see a a part of their character that that maybe we lack. That we want to bring into our character. Mine were several. Some embarrassing, some not so embarrassing. One of mine was Captain Kirk. He was my idol when I was young. I saw him as courageous, definitive. He was pretty cool, too. Another one of my heroes was George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. I saw his kindness and his sacrificial nature. I was attracted to that. A third one was a character in a book of a separate piece. I don't know if you know that, John Knowles, a separate piece, but one of the major characters there, was his name was Phineas, and he was athletic. He had it all, if you read that book. Yet, he was accepting of everybody that came into his life. He didn't belong to a clique. I really respected that. In our idols, we identify something maybe we lack or something you want to emulate. We look up to our idols. We trust our idols. In some cases, we revere them. In some cases, we put them on pedestals. For the Jews, there is no higher pedestal than Moses. He was alone, far above any of the other prophets. The author of the Hebrews is writing to keep a group of converted Jews, Christian Jews, from leaving the faith. That's that's the overarching reason for the letter. They're under immense persecution and pressure, and they are beginning to waver. And the author hears about this and writes them this letter so that he's encouraging them throughout these 13 chapters to stay the course, not to turn back. Not to go back to the Old Covenant. Not to go back to Moses, their idol. So he writes these six verses, pleading with them to consider what they're doing. Consider their temptation. And to consider Christ. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 3. The Word of God starts, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house 
is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Father God, we pray for our hearts that you will open them wide to the wonder of your word, to the power of your word, to the challenge of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a therefore here. Therefore is a concluding word. So, so the writer is bringing to conclusion a thought. The author has opened his letter, as you remember, with just coming out right out of the gates by saying Jesus is God. And then he starts in on, on what he wants to show throughout the letter, which is he's greater than anything else. And he shows, first of all, that he's greater than the angels. Secondly, he goes in to show that he is not only greater than angels, but he's the founder of your salvation. He is the foundation of your salvation by becoming flesh and living and suffering and dying as a substitute in their place for their sin, taking on himself the wrath of God. That's the propitiation word we studied a couple weeks ago. Taking, on, taking the wrath of God on himself. Dying and raising again. He says, therefore, since we know all that, consider Christ. Consider. That Greek word there means to direct one's whole mind to. Think exclusively about. Examine. Ponder. Meditate on Christ. Control your thoughts and think about Christ. The author is going to come back to this same thought in chapter 12. He's going to come back as he begins to apply what he has told us in the first 11 chapters. And he's going to say, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Verse 3, consider Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not be weary. Thinking about Christ and what he has done for you gives you strength to persevere, strength to go on. That's his whole point here in these next 11 chapters. So it is here... The author says, reflect on Christ. He wants them to consider Jesus. 
Verse 1, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. This begins, chapter 3, the biggest macro section of Hebrews, if you will, from chapter 3, clear through chapter 10. And he's going to unpack these two ideas over those chapters. In chapters 3 and 4, he's going to unpack and focus on Jesus, the apostle. What does that mean? In chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, he's going to focus on Jesus, the high priest. And he's going to unpack that again and again through wonderful images. So in chapters 3 and 4, the author unpacks Jesus, the apostle, the apostolos. Apostle meaning one who is sent, a sent one. In the New Testament, there are what I have thought of as capital A apostles and lower A apostles. Capital A apostles are those who are commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to go and build the foundation of the Christian church. Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the foundation of, of the church. Then there are lower A apostles, those like Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, and Titus in 2 Corinthians 8, and Andronicus and Junia in Romans 16, people who are sent and who exhibit self-sacrifice and suffering for the gospel. In a sense, that's, the, that's what we are all in the category of, lower A apostles. But here Jesus is called the Apostle. The definite article is used here. It's the only place in the New Testament that Jesus is called an Apostle. The author uses this definite article here, meaning he is the Apostle par excellence. He is the ultimate sent one. He's the ultimate messenger because he has the ultimate message. In a long line of messengers, Jesus stands as the capstone. Look at verse 2. The author writes here, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. I want you to notice something here. The author is not throwing Moses under the bus here. The author is not pushing Moses down in order to elevate Christ here. No, he's telling us, quite frankly, Moses was incredibly faithful. He was obedient. He was long-suffering. Moses was indeed great. We simply can't understand the, how high the pedestal was in the Jewish minds for Jesus. We, we have no category for that. As John MacArthur wrote, almost everything of importance is connected with God, to God is in the Jewish mind connected to Jesus. I mean connected to Moses. Everything is connected to Moses in their mind. We don't have anyone like this in our history. 
mean, perhaps if we think of, if you're English, you think of Winston Churchill and the never, never, never give up speech, you know, and you elevate Winston Churchill. Or maybe for some of us, it might be, uh, you know, in the World War II generation, John Macar- or, um, General MacArthur, who said, I will return. Or perhaps in, in, in the religious sphere, in the, at least the Protestant religious sphere, it might be Martin Luther, who, who stood at the Diet of Worms, and when they said, either recant or die, he took a night to think about it. And he came back the next day, and he said that famous, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. But we see these men with all their flaws, don't we? We see them through that, that glass that, that we notice their tempers and their biases and their hubrises, but not Moses. The Jews would not see Moses that way. He was their trusted apostle. In him there was no wrong. He did everything for us. Think of it. He was divinely chosen. Exodus 3 the burning bush. I'm sending you. I chose you, Moses, to go and be my mouthpiece. He was their great deliverer. From, from the plagues to standing before the most powerful person in the world and saying, let my people go. From parting the Red Sea to, to feeding and watering them in the wilderness. He delivered them. He was their greatest prophet, the greatest prophet. You know, you think of Isaiah and Jeremiah, and they pale in comparison to Moses in the Jewish mind. I mean, in Numbers chapter 12, this is what God says about Moses. Listen to this. Hear my words, God says. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all of my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. The only person to behold God face to face and live. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, Moses was only second to Adam. In intimacy with God. That's amazing. He was their greatest intercessor. Think of uh, Exodus 32 when he's up on the mountain getting the law and they're down uh, in the valley and they, they build that idol and they start worshiping that golden calf and, and God says, I'm going to kill them. And what does Moses do? He says, take me instead of them. He was their great lawgiver. The law was it for the, for the Jews, wasn't it? Everything revolved around the law. They even named it after him, the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law. He was their greatest historian. He was the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament that we call the Pentateuch. And on top of this, he had ultimate character from protecting the Jewish slave by killing the Egyptian slave master to leaving the comfort of the palace 
to go out and lead this ragtag group into the desert? To, to what God says about him in Numbers 12 again. Now the man Moses was very humble, more humble than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was Luther, Churchill, MacArthur, Kirk, Bailey, and Phineas all rolled up into one and then some. And these poor Jewish Christians under incredible persecution and pressure because they were aligning themselves with Jesus were beginning to say, you know what? That guy Moses is looking really good. He's our apostle. He's the one who did it all for us. He's looking over their shoulder. And they're beginning to say, why not go back? It's so much easier. That's the temptation under pressure for all of us. To drift back to our idols. To drift back to those things that gave us comfort and peace and hope and security. Now, we're not tempted to go back to Moses. But we are tempted to go back to something that Moses represents. And we do it almost on a daily basis. And that is, we go back to works, don't we? We go back to works. I was at the post office this past week, and I, as I do every day, I go in, and there was a woman coming out, a middle-aged woman, and I, and I held the inner door for her. And I even said, oh, here, come on out. And I I held it open. I didn't hold it open 90 degrees. I actually held it open like 75 degrees, like past halfway. And my body was in front of it. And I was just saying, go ahead. I got it. And she came in and and she actually grabbed the bar with this much of her hand. And she said, no, I've got it. My body is literally blocking the door. There's no way I'm going to let this. This door can't go through my body. But she holds on to the bar with this much of her hand and says, I know I've got it. And it made me pause driving home. It's kind of how we are. That's, that, that's our, our nature is, no, I've got it. You don't do it for me. I, I'll do it for myself. I'll, I'll work myself. We're told over and over again in Scripture that salvation is by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're told over and over again in various ways that salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But we're always tempted to hold that bar. We're always tempted... Even though Jesus has opened the door for us totally, his body is blocking the door, and he's saying, come on in, we go, no, I've got it. That's our temptation. That's our nature. We go back to that again and again and again. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to all of us, stop. Consider Christ. Stop. Focus on what Christ has done for you. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. At those very moments when we're holding the bar saying, I got it. 
how he has completely completed all the work necessary for salvation. There is nothing you contribute. There's nothing for you to do except persevere. That's going to be the major lesson throughout the book of Hebrews, by the way. Persevere. That's what the author is doing here. He's not demolishing Moses, but elevating Christ. Moses was great, but Jesus is so much greater. So much greater than Moses. And the writer goes on to show this in several different ways. He tells us to consider, to think deeply about Jesus' calling. That's the first way he he helps us to consider Christ. Consider Jesus' greater calling. The author has already said it, but Moses was faithful in his calling. But then look with me at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house, just repeating what he said, all of God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. I want you to underline, if you're a Bible underliner, underline those things that were spoken of later. Because those things that Moses was speaking of is Christ. Moses was speaking of Christ. Moses' calling was to testify to Christ. His whole life in ministry spoke of Christ. And Jesus is the fulfillment. That's what Jesus was pointing out that day to the Pharisees in John chapter 5 when they were contending with him again. And Jesus said these words, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he says he wrote of me. You see, the Pharisees were making the same mistake the audience of the letter of Hebrews was. They were setting their hope on Moses. They were looking back to Moses for the hope and the peace. And Jesus here is mirroring exactly what Hebrews 3.5 says. Moses' calling was to testify to Christ. Richard Phillips in his commentary writes, Everything in the Mosaic administration points forward to Jesus Christ. And I just want to take a few minutes to point some of those out to you. Think of the tabernacle that was given through Moses. The design in the building of it. God was to dwell in the midst of his people. When John was inspired to write his gospel, he said this in, in verse 14, the word became flesh, and the word that is used there is tabernacled with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God dwelling in the midst of his people. Think of how Moses led the people out of slavery through an impossible Red Sea barrier. Looks forward to Christ Christ freeing us through going through an impossible barrier of death, freeing us from the bondage of sin. 
and the curse of death. Think of Moses striking the rock that was mentioned last week and bringing forth water. You know how Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees that event? He writes of it in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Israel drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Think of Moses praying and feeding his people through the manna. Prefigured Christ. In John 10, when he's talking about it, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. And he points, I see him pointing to himself. I don't see him be speaking in riddles here before them. He wants them to see that he is the fulfillment of what Moses prayed for. Think of Moses' office as prophet. Yet Moses himself wrote in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put the words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command. The fulfillment is Jesus. Consider Moses' Moses's whole life. It all anticipated Christ. He left that life of ease in the palace and came down to lead into the desert. He led them out of slavery, guided them in the wilderness. But he was not allowed to lead them into the promised land. Isn't that interesting? Talked a little bit about that last week. Dustin did. Because he struck the rock twice, right? And stole God's glory. So God said, you may not lead my people into the promised land. All true. But I want you to consider Christ. Consider the bigger picture that God is painting there even. It's not Moses who is going to lead the people into the promised land. It's going to be Christ who does that. Spiritually. It was all anticipating Christ. It's, it's prefiguring how, how Christ is, is superior to Moses. He was planning that 1,400 years before Jesus even came on the scene. Secondly, the author says, consider Christ's greater glory. Consider Christ's calling as superior. Consider Christ's greater glory. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. The writer there says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Here the author is using a metaphor of, of a builder and a building to help us understand something. I was given permission by the trustees to build a rudimentary wall in my basement. My kids are growing bigger and we need more space in the house, so I thought I'd make a little space downstairs for them to go down and be teenagers, get away from their parents. If you were to go down and look at my work, you'd see uneven cuts, you'd see unsquare edges, You'd see wedges and quick fixes where I made mistakes. 
And the natural question you would ask is, who built this thing? (laughs) You'd want to know the builder. You'd want to know the designer because it's so bad. But if you were to travel to Rome and go into St. Peter's Basilica and stand under that dome, the dome that inspired our own capital, and look up, you would see perfection. You'd see beauty. You'd see intricacy of design that, would, that is just awe-inspiring. And you would ask the same question, but in a different tone. You'd say, oh, who built this thing? And you'd gain a whole new appreciation for who Michelangelo was. See, the glory doesn't go to the dome. It goes to the person. That's the idea here. Look at verses 5 and 6 again with me and read with me again. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was faithful, but he was part of the house. Jesus created the house. Moses is part of the building that Jesus built. Moses is glorious for what he did. But Jesus, the designer, has to be counted of more glory because he built that whole house. Jesus built the body by allowing his own body to be broken. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's what this table, part of what this table represents. You know, the words of institution, this is my body broken for you. That's how he built us. That's how he built our, this house that we call the church. By allowing his body to be broken, by, by allowing himself to be born under the law the law that he created. And he was now responsible for actually fulfilling. And he did it perfectly. Because he, in his incredible mercy, knew that we couldn't. Not for a day. And if you really know yourself, not for an hour. And if you really know yourself, not for a minute. And he went to the cross. He allowed himself his body to be beaten. He allowed huge nails to be driven through his hands and his feet, to be raised up and mocked and spit on. He allowed his body literally to be broken because that was the cost. That's the cost of sin. His death. And he breathed his last and he died. And he was buried, just like we said in the Apostles' Creed. But he rose again, proving everything he did was true, everything he said was right, conquering sin and death, just so he could build us. 
his church. Yeah, we're beautiful. But the designer gives the, gets the glory, doesn't he? Third, consider Jesus' motivation. Consider Jesus' greater motivation. That is, the author is using again the household imagery here of servants and son that we just read about in, Ch- in verses 5 and 6. In the ancient life, in the ancient world, the life of a servant was not quite what we think of it as Americans today. They were, they were brought into the family. They were, they, were, they were loved, many times beloved. They were considered part of the family. They were treated well with fam- familial in- intimacy. And the servant had a special position in the family. But the position of a servant in comparison to the naturally born son of that house is worlds apart. Even though they might have loved that servant, and that servant might have been with them for 40 years, paled in comparison to the naturally born son. The position of a servant, the son had an inheritance in the family, the son had a permanence in the family, the son had a special place in the father's heart, the son simply had a superior position in the family. See, Moses was an incredibly faithful servant of God. But the author of the Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is God's son. He's the son of God. God himself. See, here the author is bringing to the surface the motivation for faithfulness through servant and son. The servant obeys under compunction to please the master. But a son obeys out of a desire to please the father. A servant obeys the master when the eye is on him. A son obeys the master when the master is away. I think a couple parables that Jesus told point to that. A servant obeys to get the glory for himself. A son obeys to give glory to God. A servant obeys to get something from the master. But a son obeys simply simply because he loves the father. Moses was faithful but not perfect. He got frustrated and wanted to quit many times. He stole God's glory even in striking that rock. His faithfulness was as a servant, but Jesus' faithfulness was that of a son. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus that I'm just going to read here. And I want them to become the motivation for why we do what we do, why we obey. Listen to Jesus' words as the son and let them convict you as it did me. He said on one occasion, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and his work. My will is like food. He said on another occasion, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. My whole life is about Christ, is about God. He said on another occasion, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Do you hear the son motivation there? Why do I do the things that I do? Because I want to please my father in heaven. 
And at the end of his life, he said, I've brought glory, brought you glory, pointing up to the Heavenly Father on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. I pray that that is what we can say, each one of us, at the end of our life. So the author's point is Jesus is greater in his motivation, greater in his glory, greater in his calling, and his conclusion is, so don't go back. Don't return to Moses. Because if you do, verse 6, you have to consider the consequences. Look at verse 6 with me. He says, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The author leaves us with a warning. He's going to expand on this warning in the next, the rest of chapter 3. But first, I will just want you to notice the pronoun we there. This is a general warning to all of God's house. He's including himself in this warning. Yes, to these Jewish Christians, but to all Christians at all times. The author wants to let us know that you are part of God's house if you hold fast. Yep, you are God's child if you remain faithful. Yep, you are God's son if you persevere in the faith to the end. You are saved if you continue in that faith to the end. The implication, if you turn back to Moses for your hope, you're not a child of God. If you turn away from Christ and put your hope in anything else for eternity, if you look to anything else for security, if you look to anything else for your peace, and you turn away from Christ, you're not saved. And I would say you weren't saved in the first place. If you look to anything else, you'll die. That's, that's what he's saying. Imagine if you had a pain in your abdomen. And you try and endure it for a couple weeks. And then you start self-medicating with Tylenol and Advil and Aleve and whatever else. But it doesn't go away. And finally, you decide to go to your trusted doctor. Let's call him Dr. Bob. You've been with him for decades. You trust him. He's never steered you wrong. He's always cured you. He's always helped you. You have a relationship with him. You know him. He's familiar. He's almost a part of your family. And Bob examines you and he does some poking, does some tests, maybe takes some blood. And he comes walking into the room with a folder under his arm and a stern look on his face. And he tells you to get into your car right now and drive to the hospital. He tells you that he, has, he cannot cure what you have. 
And he says he's called ahead and there's a surgeon waiting for you to take you into the operating room. That's how serious it is. You get into your car and you start driving. And about when you get to the top of Eagle Lake Road, you start thinking and remembering about Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob, he was always there for me. I know Dr. Bob. I don't know this surgeon. Dr. Bob, I'm on a first-name basis with him. I don't even know the name of this new guy. And then you begin to think about the surgeon, and you think, I don't have a whole lot of experience with him, but I do with Dr. Bob. Now, how foolish would it be for you to stop at the top of Eagle Lake Road and turn your car around and start heading back to go to Dr. Bob? He's already told you he can't cure you. He's pointed you in the direction of one that can. He's told you that you'll die if you don't go to him. If you don't keep on driving to the hospital, you'll die. If you don't go to that surgeon, you'll die. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. If you go back to Moses... You'll die. That's what he's saying to us. He's saying, listen, if you go back to your idols, those things that give you comfort and security, whatever they are, some common ones are are money, prestige, reputation, power, family even. If you go back to those things and you don't cling to Christ, you'll die. If you don't persevere when things get tough with Christ, if you don't cling to him and persevere, you'll die. Persevere. Because you are God's house. You are God's people. If indeed you persevere. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word, how rich and deep and wonderful it is. It's a salve to our soul and a challenge to our our minds. Lord, help us to, to live a perseverant life and to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.